Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Last week, we began a new series entitled Generosity because I am convinced all of us, at least most of us, desire to live a generous life. The problem is we just don't know how to do it. Now, last week, as we began, we began by looking at the key to generosity, and that is realizing everything that I have, my, my money, my possessions, and even my life is a result of the generosity of God. David said it this way in Psalm 24. He said, the earth belongs to God. Everything is his. James said it this way. He said, every good gift, every good thing comes from God. When I realize that everything is God's and everything that I have in my possession is a gift from God, it will cause me to look at things differently. It will cause me to spend my resources differently. It will cause me to invest in things differently. But this morning, what I want us to do is look at our number one enemy, the number one enemy to generosity. And and I want you to know the number one enemy to generosity is the person that I see when I look in this mirror. And the number one enemy to your generosity is the person that you see when you look in this mirror. Now, some of you are going to say, I see my next door neighbor. No, let's get a little bit more close up here. Because understand, the enemy to your generosity is you. It's your greed. It's your materialism. It's your desire for things that causes you to not be generous. Your desire to keep up with your neighbors. Your desire to keep up with your co-workers. Your desire to keep up with people that you don't even like. You see, generosity is, is not the result of of what I have in my bank account. Generosity is the result of who I have in my heart. Most people believe that if they have more money, then they will become generous. But that's not true. Just because you have more money doesn't mean you will become generous. If we aren't generous when we have a little, we won't be generous when we have a lot. If we are stingy when we are poor, we will be stingy when we're rich. You see, money doesn't fix those kinds of problems. As a matter of fact, money can cause more problems if we don't have a proper view of money. And that's what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6. I want you to listen to what Paul says beginning in verse 3. He says, if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and the godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy and strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt minds who have been robbed of the truth and who think That godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and 
We can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptations and and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that, that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And then listen to what he says beginning in verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now let me share with you four observations from this passage as we begin. The first is a misconception, and that is that godliness is a means to financial gain. That's what Paul says in verse 5. Now understand, there is an entire stream of Christianity that teaches this today. We, we call it the prosperity gospel or the word of faith movement. A popular claim or a popular phrase in this movement is name it and claim it. In other words, you tell God what you want, stake a claim on it, and it's yours. Now this group, the prosperity gospel teachers, would never see it this way, but they are no different than the false teachers Paul wrote about in 1 Timothy 6 who saw God as a means to financial gain. Paul said the problem with these people is this. They have corrupt minds. That word corrupt literally means rotten to the core. It means rotten through and through. And so what Paul is saying is their minds have become like rotten mush. And then he says they have been robbed of the truth. In other words, they no longer have the truth. You see, this teaching has turned the truth of God's Word upside down because they believe that God is here to serve us. But the Bible teaches that we are here to serve God. You see, godliness is not a means to an end. Godliness is an end in itself. The fact of the matter is, many of the believers in the early church were slaves. They had no personal possessions. They had no personal rights. There were other believers who lost everything as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now the truth is, the Bible does teach that God blesses us when we are obedient to Him. But understand, those blessings come in a variety of ways. And those blessings aren't the reason for our obedience. Those blessings are a byproduct of our obedience. So the misconception, godliness is a means to financial gain. 
If you give so that God will give you more in return, you've missed the whole point of biblical giving. And most likely, you've missed the whole point of God's Word. Because it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about Him. Next, we discover a truth. And that truth is this, godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, did you notice those two words in verse 6, godliness and contentment? Paul says that godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Now, the word for great is the word, the Greek word mega, super, abundant, a whole, whole lot. The apostle Paul said when we have godliness and we add to that contentment, we will have a super helping, a supersized portion of God's gain. You see, contentment, the Bible says, is a byproduct of, of godliness. Godliness is a relationship with God. It's knowing Him and putting Him first in our life. And when we do that, we will experience contentment because we know that He loves us, He cares for us, and He will meet the basic needs of our life. Now, the Apostle Paul defines what we should be content with. And he says that we should be content with food and shelter. In other words, Paul says that when I have the basic needs of life met, I should be content. Now, our problem today is that we are no longer content when our basic needs are met. We have a big list, don't we? Most of us do, of our wants. And we feel that it is necessary for those wants to be met for us to have contentment in life. And so a truth, godliness plus contentment results in great gain. Now the third thing Paul gives us in this passage is a warning. And the warning is this. He says, misplaced desires will lead to our downfall. He gives us that in verses 9 and 10. Now, don't miss what Paul said. He said, people who want to get rich. Let's stop there. In other words, that's their goal, that's their aim, that's their desire in life. Paul doesn't say that people who get rich. Paul doesn't say that people who are rich. Paul says, rather, that people who are driven by the desire to get rich, people who are driven by the desire to make more and have more, that's the people that he's talking about. People that are driven by their greed. People that are driven by their materialism. People who are driven by their love for money. Now, let me be crystal clear. This passage never says that money is evil. You see, money is passive. Money is morally neutral. It's neither good nor bad. But when it gets into our hands, it becomes something totally different. It comes alive. And depending on how we use it, that money in our hands can unleash on us and our family a world of good or a world of hurt. In 1918, David McConey wrote a book entitled Money, the Acid Test. Now, let me tell you, he must have been a prophet because what he wrote in 1918 is more applicable today 
than ever before in the history of our nation. I want you to listen to something he said in that book. He said, money molds people. Depending upon how it is handled, it proves a blessing or a curse to its possessor. Either the person becomes a master of the money, or the money becomes a master of the person. And that's the problem. All too often, you and I are mastered by money rather than mastering our money. We have a desire for more and more and more. And Paul says that's dangerous. He says it can lead to temptations. It can lead to traps. And all of a sudden we find ourselves with these foolish and harmful desires that can ultimately lead, Paul says, to our ruin and then to our destruction. You see, the desire for riches can cause us to do things we should never do and act in ways we should never act. He even says that there are some who have wandered from the faith because of their love, their desire for money. You see, the love of money can lead us down a path that can destroy us, destroy our families, and hear me, it can even rob us of all eternity. When we are driven by our desire for money and the the things that money can provide, it will always, and let me say again, it will always lead us away from God. When we are driven by our desire for money and the things that money can provide, it always leads us away from God. But finally, notice the command, and that is to trust God And be generous. And and we see this in verses 17 through 19. First, Paul tells us to trust God, not riches. Our bank accounts can be emptied. Our, Our savings and our retirement accounts can disappear. You see, it's not the money in our bank account or hidden under our mattress that provides security. God is the one who provides security. And the Bible says that he will provide everything. Don't miss this. God will provide everything we need to enjoy life. Now that's a promise. God says, I will give you everything that you need to enjoy life. But then notice what he says. He said we should use both our time and our treasures to help others. And when we do, when we use our time and we'll use our treasure to help others, we are storing up treasures for all eternity. You see, it is only when we live this kind of life, a life of radical generosity in giving our time and and giving our resources that we begin to truly live the way God intends for us to live. Now, before we go any further, I want you to lean forward. I want you to lean forward. Come on, play with me here. I want you to lean forward, and I want you to listen very closely to me. Here's the problem. We do things our way. We do stupid things, and then somehow, someway, we ask God to bless it. Let me say that again. We do things our way, stupid things, 
foolish things. And then somehow, someway, we expect God to bless it. And so the question is, how can I move from greed? How can I move from, from living a life of materialism to a life of generosity? Well, I want you to know that I believe that the Bible is the absolute best financial manual there is. It gives timeless principles on how to manage our money. Now, as I share these things, you're going to say, I already know that, and that's okay. The question is, are you applying it? Because I'm here to tell you, it's not the information you have in your brain, it's the application that you're putting into your life that makes a difference. And some of you are in deep financial weeds, and I can tell you, it's not because you're applying God's principles. It's because you are applying your principles. And my question for you is this, how's it working for you? And so let me give you four biblical principles on how to get your finances under control so that you can move to that point where it's not about you, it's about living a life of generosity. Here's the first thing. Don't spend what you don't have. Your name isn't Uncle Sam. You can't do that. In other words, act your wage. Not your age, act. Your wage. You see, financial freedom is not dependent upon how much you make. Financial freedom is dependent upon how you spend what you make. Have you ever heard someone say, I just can't seem to, to live on what I make? A more accurate statement is, I can't support my lifestyle on what I make. Now, to understand, I know that some people are making such a small amount that it's very difficult to live. But if you don't think you can live with less, I can take you to places around Columbia where people are living in the woods on next to nothing. You see, it's not that I can't live on what I make. It's that I can't live on the lifestyle I want to live on what I make. Hear me very carefully. You cannot continue to spend money you don't have. You got to stop it. Now here's the problem. Most of us are clueless when it comes to what we spend. <laughs> we don't know what we're spending. Proverbs 27, 23, and 24 says this. Riches disappear fast. So watch your business interests closely. Know the stake state of your flocks. In Solomon's day, the people were herdsmen. There were farmers and a person's wealth, a person's amount of money was not dependent upon the, the money they had in a bank account, but their, the, the animals they had in the pasture, the crops that they had in the field. And Solomon was saying, know the state of your money. Keep an eye on your finances. Have you ever heard someone say, I just don't know where my money goes? Have you ever heard someone say that? Can I tell you, if you don't know where your money goes, that will always lead to financial ruin. There are two things every person needs to know. First of all, you need to know what you make. Makes sense, doesn't it? You need to know what you make. Break it down yearly, monthly, weekly. Know what you make. And then you need to know what you spend. 
everything you spend. What you need to do is you need to get a budget. You need to have a monthly cash flow plan. And a monthly cash flow plan typically has every single thing you will spend. Now, for a Christian, it always starts here with what you give back to God. Because that's what the Bible teaches. But notice, then there is, there's saving, there's housing, there's utilities, there's food, there's clothing, there's transportation, there's, there's medical, there's insurance, there's personal, which includes child care, toiletries, used toilet paper, cosmetics, education, all those things. And so you need to know what you make, you need to know what you spend, and then notice what you do. You take what you make, you subtract what you spend. And if you got a positive number, you're off to a good start. If you got a negative number, you got some explaining to do. Because it's going to come back to hit you. If you've got a negative number, there are only two options. There are really only two options. The one is that you reduce your spending... That's option number one. And the second option is you make more money. You either work longer hours, you get a promotion, you get a better job. Those are the only two options. You can't spend more than you make on a consistent basis and live that way. Now, what we're talking about is budgeting. And a budget is simply a a spending plan. That's what a budget is. It's me telling my money where I want it to go rather than coming to the end of the month and wondering where did my money go. Now let me give you some advice. Here's what we do in the Purvis household. We have an envelope system. We've just chosen to do that. When I get paid, when Sherry gets paid, we, we take money and we put it in an envelope. And we have various envelopes. We have a food envelope. We have, we have a miscellaneous envelope. We have all of these envelopes. And when we go to buy something, we pay for it out of the envelope. And when the envelope is empty, we can't buy anything out of that envelope until the next pay period. That's just how it is. And you know what I've discovered? When, when we have cash in an envelope... We become attached to that cash. I mean, we begin to name those bills. There's Benjamin. There's George. And I love those guys. And, and we're, we're a little uh, less quick to get rid of them, aren't we? I mean, when we go into the store and we have that $100 bill, we go, ooh, do I really want to break this for a latte? And so a budget is a spending plan. And so we ask ourselves, do I really need that new pair of shoes? Do I really need that new gun? Do I really need that new game that just came out or that new iPhone 26 that just hit the market? Do I need that? Now this leads to the second point, and that's this. Resist the desire to acquire. I want you to listen to this verse, Proverbs 27, 20, in the Living Bible says this. I love this verse because it's so true. It says, human desires are like the world of the dead. There is always room for more. 
Human desires are like the world of the dead. There's always room for more. Someone once asked Howard Hughes when he was one of the richest men in the world when he was alive, how much money does it take to make you happy? And he said, always a little bit more. And isn't that true? I I mean, we're all guilty, aren't we, of saying things like this. If I just had, and, and we fill in the blank, if I just had this much money, then I would be happy. And all of a sudden... We get to that amount of money, and you know what? Our number changes. Have you discovered that? I mean, that's the way it is with us. Because we think that money will make us happy. But money will never make us happy. The American motto shouldn't be life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It should be life, liberty, and the purchase of happiness. Because we think that our happiness is dependent upon having the best the latest, better than anybody else. But what I've discovered is our yearnings are going to always exceed our earnings. What we want is going to always be more than the money that we have. And our desire to acquire keeps growing no matter how much we make. Listen to this verse in Ecclesiastes. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Hebrews 13, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. And the truth of the matter is when we get so busy trying to make more because we want more, we don't have time to enjoy what we already have. Here's what I've discovered. No matter how much you earn, you're going to always yearn more. Someone said it this way. If your outgo exceeds your income, your upkeep will be your downfall. And that's in economic proportions today. That's why we're in debt. That's why we buy things on credit. You've heard the slogan, no credit, no problem. But there is a problem. Probably all of y'all have seen this commercial at some time or another. Watch this. I'm Stanley Johnson. I've got a great family. I've got a four-bedroom house in a great community. Like my car, it's new. I even belong to the local golf club. How do I do it? I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. I can barely pay my finance charges. Somebody help me. Need a smart way to consolidate your debt? At LennyTree.com, banks compete, and you choose the loan that's right for you. Then you know the crazy thing about that commercial? The solution in that commercial is just a different kind of debt. Let's consolidate your debt. But can I tell you, that's not the solution. The solution is to pay off your debt. Pay it off. Come up with a plan. Dave Ramsey has what he calls a debt snowball. Where you can pay off your debt. Pay off your debt. American consumers owe trillion in debt. This is 2014 figures. American consumers have $880.3 billion in credit card debt. Listen, look at me. The average American family that has a credit card debt owes $15,000 on their credit card. Can I tell you? That's crazy. Student loan debt, $1,122 billion in student loans. 
Proverbs 22 says, the rich rule over the poor. The borrower is a servant to the lender. And that's just a fact. When we borrow money, we are enslaved to the lender until we repay what we've borrowed. And debt creates a false persona. You say, what are you talking about? Well, debt makes other people think things about us that just aren't true. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 13, verse 7. Some people pretend to be rich, but they have nothing. Other people pretend to be poor, but they own a fortune. Some people pretend to be rich. What does it mean? Well, they got bunches of stuff, but they're in debt up to their eyeballs. Other people, you would never know it, but they've got lots of money. They've got the ability to live like no one else because they've lived like no one else. We've got to do something with our debt. Now, there are three types of debt. Some people say all debt is wrong. I I personally believe that there is acceptable debt, there's questionable debt, and then there's bad debt. Let me give you an example. Acceptable debt is what I could call, what I would call intelligent borrowing because the, the debt is secured. For instance, if I save up money and I put a down payment on a home that I buy at a good price and I have a lot of equity in that home, that's a secure investment. And, and that's okay. Most of us would never be able to own a home Apart from that. So there's acceptable debt. And, and then there's questionable debt. An example of questionable debt would be a, a, a car loan. Uh, a good car loan would be buying a used car with a large down payment that you could pay off in, in 18, 24, 36 months at most so that you could get back and forth to work. A bad car loan would be buying a brand new car at the average rate today, which is 70 months. I got to tell you, I would cry if I left the car dealership knowing that I had to pay for a car for 70 months. You see, there's there's questionable debt. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. Another example is student loan debt. I mean, some people cannot go to school apart from student loans. But here's the thing. Most student loan today is well over $30,000. And that's just flat out not wise. It would be better for a person to get a part-time job and work and and find grants and find scholarships and, and mop floors or whatever else rather than racking up this debt so that you could live while you're going to school. And then there is bad debt. Bad debt is credit card debt. You're, you're using credit cards to purchase things you can't afford at super high interest rates. And then we, we start singing, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Well, that, that bombed. <laughs> Some of you, what you need to do is you need to... You need to Cancel your credit cards right now. You need to pay them off. You say, I can't. Yes, you can. You can do it if you have a plan. I mean, do you really need to get your nails done twice a month, ladies? Yeah. Yeah, my husband loves it. No, he doesn't. I've never heard a man. I've got to tell you, I grew up with men. 
I grew up playing sports and gyms, and I never heard a man say, did you see the nails on that woman? (laughs) Never heard that. Do you really need to go to Starbucks three times a week and pay five bucks for a cup of coffee? Do you really need to play golf every week? Now hear me, none of those things are wrong if you're not in debt. But if you're in debt, stop it. Cut those things out and start using that money to pay down your debt so you can live like no one else. Pay off your debt. The third thing that you need to do is this. You need to prepare. And and let me give you this. I forgot to fill in this blank. What you need to do is find your joy in Christ, not things. Remember what Paul said. Christ provides us with everything we need for our enjoyment. Now, this is what I believe that Paul is saying. When we have Christ, we have everything we need in life to enjoy life because he's our everything. If I have nothing else, I have everything when I have Jesus. Now, here's the third thing I need to do. I need to prepare for a rainy day. Because, hear me, rainy days come, don't they? George Burns said this. He said, people tell me I should save for a rainy day, but with my luck, it will never rain. And I'll be stuck with all that money. But let me tell you, rainy days come. Money Magazine said, I want you to listen to this. Money Magazine said 78% of us will have a major economic event happen every 10 years. 78%. So we better be ready. Now what I would encourage you to do is take something from every, every check. Something, anything. So that when you need a new set of tires, you can pay for it. When you need a a new washing machine, you can pay for it. God forbid, when you lose your job, you'll have some money set aside so that you can live until you get another job. Solomon said this, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. Wise people save. Foolish people spend everything they have. Now, what amount? Now, people will say different amounts here, but, but what many people say is you need to save until you have three to six months of income in a savings account so that if something tragic happens, you can get by while you're making adjustments. So what you need to do is you need to, out of every check, take some money and set aside and say, we're not spending this so that when the rainy day comes, you're going to be ready. And once you do that, then you need to start saving for when you're ready to retire. Because there's going to come a point in time when you're going to want to retire. And some of you my age, you're thinking, well, the government's going to help me with that. I hope so. I'm 54. I'm not counting on getting any Social Security. Now, you may say you're a pessimist. No, I'm a realist. When we're continuing to deplete an account, something's got to give. 
And so you better start saving some money for retirement or when you retire, you better get used to eating Alpo. And I think Alpo tastes worse than Spam. Which, enough said. So save for a rainy day. Prepare for a rainy day. And then finally, the fourth thing is this. Give generously. Now, obviously, the first step is tithing to your church. That's clear. The Bible makes that crystal clear. As a matter of fact, I believe, and, and let me tell you, this is me. I believe that generosity begins when we pass the minimum point of obedient giving, and that's tithing. I don't even move into generosity until I do that minimum that God requires. Generosity is when we move beyond that point and we give over and above the tithe to causes and people that God puts on our heart to help us reach the Iban people. To, to, to be able to, to see someone beside the street that, that says, we'll work for food, and, and you pick them up, and you take them to, to buy groceries. Generosity. John Piper, in his book, Brothers, We're Not Professionals, made several statements that it caused me to think. He said, the person who thinks the money he makes is meant mainly to increase his comforts on earth, is a fool. God does not prosper a man's business so that he can move from a Buick to a BMW. God prospers a business so that hundreds of unreached peoples can be reached with the gospel. He prospers a business so that 20% of the world's population can move a step back from the precipice of starvation. You see, if we will make the decision to live like no one else lives, there will come a point in our life where we are able to give like no one else gives. I'm glad when I was young, I began to learn some, some budgeting principles. Because now... My wife and I are able to give at a level and give in a way that we couldn't give when we first got married. And I'm not talking about the tithe and how the tithe has increased because we have more money. No, I'm talking about the over and the above that you're able to do when you determine God is placing resources in my hands so that I can help other people. So that I can help reach the world with the good news of Jesus. So that I can help to, to alleviate poverty and hunger in the world. So that I can help with the orphaned in the world. You see, that's what God wants us to do. God wants us to move to that point where we're not always increasing our standard of living. We're increasing our standard of giving. Jesus said it this way. He said, so don't worry at all about, about having enough food and clothing. Your heavenly Father already knows that you need that. 
He will give it to you if you give him first place in your life and you live like he wants you to. Earlier in this passage, Jesus said you cannot serve God and money. And so my question is, who are you serving today? Who are you serving? Now, probably none of us in this room are going to say, oh, I'm serving the almighty dollar. And yet, if we look at how we're spending our time, if we look at how we're spending our resources, how we're investing the, the money that God has placed in our hands, would it look like we're serving God? Or would it look like we're serving God? money my prayer is that you will move from greed to generosity you will move from a lifestyle of selfishness to a lifestyle of selflessness because that's the way Jesus was would you pray with me your heads bowed with your eyes closed. Let's ask God to search our hearts and make us into generous people. Father God, we know that everything that is in our hands, we know that everything that is in our possession, is a gift from you. We're only stewards. Father, I pray right now that you will make us into a generous people. Who put the needs of a lost world ahead of the desires of greedy people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now listen very carefully. Here's what I know. That kind of living doesn't make sense apart from Jesus. I I know that. No one who doesn't know Jesus will ever really want to give the way God wants us to give. And so if you're here and you've never given your heart and life to Jesus, let me tell you, not only will it result in a change of perspective on your giving, it will result in a change of how you live in every area of your life. Because His Holy Spirit will come into you and change you and make you a brand new person as you acknowledge You're not who God wants you to be. You're a sinner. You accept his gift of eternal life. And you surrender your life to him. And so if you're here and you've never made that commitment. To give Jesus your life. I want to encourage you to do that right now. I want you to bow your head again with me. If you're here and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. Would you pray this prayer right now? Dear Jesus. I come to you. Asking you to forgive me. I've been living life my way. I've been self-sufficient. 
self-serving. I don't want to live that way anymore. Forgive me. Jesus, I believe you love me. You died on the cross for me. You paid for my sins. Right now, I'm accepting your gift. I need you. Come into my life. Take control. From this moment on, Jesus, I want to live for you. I want to live your way. Wherever you lead, whatever you command, I want to do. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And we're going to continue our time of prayer now. You may be here and there may be all kind of needs in your life right now. You may have physical needs and need a touch from Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. You may have financial needs. You're in debt up to your eyeballs and you want to do what's right. You want to begin to live God's way, but you don't know how to do it. And you need to cry out to the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Maybe you're here and your marriage is falling apart. And, and you need to call out to the one who hates divorce and, and wants your marriage to work. Maybe you're here and, and it's some hidden demon. An addiction. Maybe a form of depression is eating you away inside, and you need God's touch. What I want to do right now is I want to invite you, anyone who wants to, to come to the altar, and we're going to pray right now. So if you've got prayer needs, come on to the altar right now. Father God, we're gathered at this altar this morning acknowledging that apart from you, we can't do anything. We need you. We need you to guide us. 
We need you to rescue us. We need you to intervene in our lives. We need you to touch us. We need you to comfort us. As we gather here, we acknowledge that you and you alone are God. You're Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. Jehovah Tishkenu, our righteousness. We come to you asking you to meet our needs. Physical, spiritual, emotional, financial, relational. We ask you to set us free from the chains that have bound us. We ask you to deliver us from the darkness that seems to overwhelm us. We ask you to speak to us. The heavens seem silent. We will praise you and honor you and give you glory for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.